Hello, and welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast, where we learn about the ocean, share sea stories, and explore ocean careers. I'm your host, Kara Musia. Let's dive into today's episode. This episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to those of you who have become patrons of the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. For less than the cost of a dive tank refill or a cup of coffee, you can help keep the podcast episodes coming. There's also some fun bonuses for patrons, so be sure to check those out at patreon.com backslash marine bio life. That's patreon.com backslash marine bio life. Hello, mermaids, pirates, ocean lovers, and land lovers. Welcome to today's show. Question for you. What do you call an octopus with an extra tentacle? An octoplus. Today I'm chatting with Rachel Crane, a captain, dive instructor, Nat Geo expedition leader, and marine ecologist. Rachel shares with us how she went from wanting to be a vet in rural upstate New York to becoming a boat captain in the Florida Keys for Coral Restoration Foundation. Along the way, Rachel had an incredible internship that included diving with Navy SEALs in the longest pool in the world, swimming with humpback whales, and cave research. Rachel also takes us cruising with Nat Geo in Alaska and shares a hilarious and rare interaction between a juvenile tiger shark and a pufferfish. Rachel has had some fascinating twists and turns in her journey, and I am excited to share this conversation with you. Here's Rachel. Rachel, welcome to the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast. I am so excited to have you on. Oh, thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Great. So you have quite the ocean career. You wear many different hats right now, and I'm really excited to dive more into that. But for now, how did you get into ocean science and what inspired you to pursue that as a career? So this answer, it's a little strange, um, but I will premise with the fact that it was not my first career choice. (laughs) Um, I actually wanted to be a vet. Uh, So I grew up on a farm. I worked with our vet for a whole summer and I learned I am allergic to everything. No, no. Yes, all the cute, fuzzy things, allergic to them all. Um, But I was a swim team kid, and I loved the water, and I figured, hey, I'm not allergic to the water, so maybe I can go play with critters in the water. And that's how I went the marine biology route. Um, Yeah, and that's how I chose that career. (laughs) So... That's really funny. Now, where did you grow up? You say you grew up on a farm. Yeah, so I grew up in rural upstate New York. So um, I have actually never been to New York City. So upstate farm country, New York. So very Um, far from the ocean. Yes, landlocked. Uh, The only experience I had with the ocean was vacations to like the Outer Banks. So that that was my ocean experience. That's incredible. And now when you graduated high school, is that when you made the decision of like, well, there's critters in the ocean. Maybe I'm not allergic to them. I'll pursue that in college. Ah, so that is a question that actually doesn't work on me because I didn't go to high school. Oh, so, fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> yep, I skipped that bit. Um, so you went from middle school to college? Yeah. So I actually did associate's degrees in lieu of high school. Okay. Yeah. So... When I was 14, 
Um, so I was homeschooled on the farm. Okay. So up until I was 14, I was homeschooled by my mom. And then at that point, she said, I'm not really comfortable doing high school education. So you can go public, private, or community college. And being the little kid I was, I was like, hey, so if I go to community college and I take that history class, it counts for high school and college. Like I only have to take it once. Mm-hmm. And she's like, yeah. And I was like, sign me up. <laughs> yeah. So, that seems like a no brainer. <laughs> yep. So I started taking college courses at 14 and graduated with associate's degrees in math and science. So I went pretty broad. I knew I liked science. I was really good at math. I'm that kid that took calc-based physics for the easy A's. So That's impressive. My yeah. head is off for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'd always loved the water and I really had started turning more and more to the idea of marine biology because during that associate's degree time is when I worked as a vet, found out I was allergic to everything. Mm. So it was when I started thinking about going to college, I was really starting to look at those marine um, majors. So like colleges that offered the marine biology type programs. I, uh, to find out if I liked it in 2008, which would have been uh, equivalent to my junior year-ish of high school, because I only did high school for like three years. I went down to Miami and I did the University of Miami, Miami's SSP, Summer Scholar Program. Uh, and I did the marine biology one. So I, I went down to Florida and I lived there for, I think it was like a month, three weeks, something like that. It's like a big summer camp on the college. Yeah. Incredible. And they, yeah, they put you through a bunch of, I think each week I did something different in marine biology. It's very, very hands-on, very smart stuff that we were doing. I was kind of overwhelmed, but very excited. Um, And it's kind of their program that they use to, I guess, get students to want to apply there. But for me, I found out I really liked the marine realm, but I did not like how big the school was. So I, I I took all my experiences and I went and found a much, much smaller college to pursue the degree at. So, and you ended up at Unity in Maine. Correct. Yes, I literally went opposite of warm and went to the cold place. I went from something like, gosh, I don't remember what their student body is, but if you include their graduate programs, I think it's something in the twenty to 50,000 student range. Yeah. And Unity has like five to 600 people total. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other big thing for me I actually wanted to go to a college that did not offer graduate programs. Interesting. So, Why? Yeah. Um, I wanted to be like, I wanted a college where the undergrads were the sole student body. So any of our professors working on projects would be coming to us to be facilitating the research with them instead of a college with multiple graduate programs where your master's and your PhD students are your TAs and they're the ones doing the research projects and you're just supposed to be sitting and learning. I wanted to put my hands in it. So that's brilliant. Yeah. So I went for a college without graduate degrees. 
and it worked out for you. What what were some of the projects that you got involved with that you just made your college career that much worth it? Oh, um, so my advisor is actually funny. A lot of things I was into as a younger individual, even on the farm and in college, back then no one knew what they were. And now people are so excited about them and they think they're cute. So um, in college, my advisor was studying tardigrades. Oh. <laughs> right? No one knew what that was. Um, could you, so for, could you explain what a tardigrade is for the audience in case people don't know what a tardigrade is? And they are yeah, really cute. Oddly, very oddly wet, like, you know, kind of a face only a mother could love, but they are cute. <laughs> yeah. And like on... Um, on Snapchat, the Bitmoji program, like you're, you and your little avatar can be with a tardigrade. It's ridiculous. <laughs> like it's in mainstream social media. Um, but tardigrades are these itty teeny microscopic little dudes. Um, and they can live in literally any environment. Um, and they can also um, hibernate. So they can kind of like dry up. You can send them into the vacuum of space for years as many as you want all of the years. And then they'll pick him back up, rehydrate him, and he'll go right on living. And they are finding them, I mean, all over the globe, they'll find them in like ancient textbooks and libraries. You can find a tardigrade. Go outside, pick up any bit of moss and shake it into a Petri dish, look under it, look in a microscope and you can find tardigrades. Um, you need a powerful microscope. <laughs> but they're yeah they're, they're affectionately referred to as water bears um and that's what my college professor was doing she was trying to identify them she's named a few species and so i'd spent a lot of time you know going through whatever samples she had from wherever like this moss sample or this whatever it was and we would just sit there and we'd find little tardigrades and like separate them out, try to take little electron microscope pictures of them so that it could go into the try to ID that thing later pile. That's a great project to work on. Yeah. So you have, so you got some experience while you're in your undergrad and you have this summer under your belt in Florida doing very hands-on marine biology research. What, Mm -hmm. what kind of made the next step after college? So... Um, so it's really funny. I, right. So I started down here in Florida and I was like, wow, warm stuff is great. Mangroves are interesting. Coral reefs are beautiful. And then I went to Maine (laughs) (laughs) and I was like, yeah, cold stuff. And I, I did it because at the time I figured that if you just went into the, into the ocean off of the Florida coast, it's very sandy. Maybe you'll see a ray, some little fishes, but there's not like a lot going on. To the naked eye versus mm-hmm. if you go up to Maine and you go along the rocky beaches, you got tide pooling, there's all kinds of stuff right there. They might not be as colorful right off the bat as like what you envision a coral reef to be, but there's a lot more things easier to touch, access, and like learn on. So that's that's why I went cold, but I was very much in love with warm. So when I graduated with all the cold experience, I immediately started applying for warm things because <laughs> I wanted back to the corals. So, um, yes. Yeah, so I, when I graduated college, um, I graduated in 2012. I did not have a job. It's okay. 
I spent the summer being a lifeguard and applying for more things. And I finally got accepted to a program at Moat Marine mm. Laboratory, which is based in Sarasota, Florida. And they also have a location in Summerland Key, which is in the mm. Florida Keys. It's at about like mile marker 30. The Keys start at zero, which is Key West. They go to like, I don't know, 112, but Key West is the bottom, Key West goes the top. And yeah, so that's when I got my hands back on corals. Um, I went into their coral disease ecology program. We, we were doing a pilot study that got published. And after that, I left because the funding ran out, so they couldn't pay me. It happened. Yeah, it does. That's, that's how it is. It was a fantastic experience. It was a lot of microbio stuff in a lab. So but, what were you, what were you specifically working on? You said disease. There's yeah. a lot of diseases, unfortunately, right now that are plaguing corals. What was what was your concentration while you're at Moat? So we were looking at a disease called black band disease, mm-hmm. and this my um, my advisor had chosen this disease because it's actually found in all of the oceans. So it's yeah, so it's one that can be found anywhere and is affecting corals. So she wanted a a disease that she could kind of apply her results to globally, mm-hmm. which is why she chose that disease. And black band just means that um, a lesion, so a cut on the coral, around the edge of it, there's literally a black band. You will mm-hmm. you will come to find that scientists are not always creative when they name things. They're very literal. <laughs> yes. So black band disease is exactly what it sounds like. Yes. And it's basically a combination of a little it's like a microbial mat uh, in the sense that like algaes and seaweeds can form kind of a mat, like a, a carpet, if mm-hmm. that's a better word. Yeah, but it's called a microbial mat and it has little bacterias along with some dudes that can photosynthesize and they work together to eat the coral and thus kill it. So mm-hmm. that's what we were looking at is as the ocean temperature gets warmer and more acidic, will this disease be more virulent, which means it's gonna kill the coral faster. So Mm -hmm. will the disease get faster or will that future ocean condition kill the disease? Will the disease no longer be able to live in that condition? Mm -hmm. So that's what we were looking at. Um, And we found that as it gets more acidic, it's harder for that disease to survive. Yeah, so that, that's interesting, and that's what we learned in the pilot study, and then she's since gone on to do a much larger scale of that. Her name is Dr. Erin Muller, so if you want to Google her, you can find more of her research at Moat. She's still there. Great. I'll put a link in the show notes to her lab, and listeners can go yeah. check it out if they'd like to. Yeah. Very cool. So funding runs out, which for listeners, it happens. It totally happens frequently, and people just figure something out. So what did you figure out? (laughs) I figured out that I really liked diving and I had to get my open water certification uh, to graduate with my degree in college. So if you wanted to graduate with a marine biology degree, you had to be a scuba diver unless you had a medical note. So I finally had my ticket um, to do that because my mom had always been scared. No one else in my family dives. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a big daunting thing to let your kid do. But I was finally like, mom, you have to let me do it. <laughs> mom, I can't graduate otherwise. So, 
<laughs> yeah, so I think I did that. Uh, well, goodness, that would have been the summer of 2010. So you got <laughs> dive certified in Maine then? Mm, upstate New York. Like you didn't have to do it at school. You just had to do it. So I did it during one of my summers. What is getting dive certified in upstate New York like? Cold. <laughs> I, were you in a quarry? No, I was in Lake George. Yeah, so it was kind of cold. We did a ton of pool work. Um, okay. I went through an agency that I don't even know if they exist anymore. They were called SEI, Scuba Educators International, and it was the company that the YMCA used. I was a okay. lifeguard at YMCA, so I got a discount. And okay. I'm pretty sure it was straight up Navy SEAL training. It was insane. <laughs> <laughs> As So now I am a dive instructor. Um, I'm a PADI master instructor, so the level above that is course director, so several levels above a basic instructor, and I have never experienced anything like my original open water training. It was insane. <laughs> I still don't know how some of it was legal. <laughs> I came out a really good diver, though, so. That's good, and, yeah. and you loved it. Not only did I you did. come out a good diver, but it didn't scare you off of it. You were like, no, Not I at all. <laughs> um yeah and so my we did a ton of pool work it was one of those things that's like at night in the evenings because everyone works and have jobs I was in with like a lot of huge age range people from all walks of life so it was geared towards that it was several months long to get through everything because you had to have your your theory sections and then your pool nights and we just constantly were going back and forth and then you had two weekends at the end where you do your open water diving. So that's when we actually went to the lake. And my very first time in the lake, my first open water dive, uh, they're, you know, they're coming up to you and he's like, okay, now I want you to flood your mask and clear it. Mm -hmm. and I had the hiccups my <laughs> entire first dive. So here I am like trying to do all these skills for him and the whole time I'm like, Ugh! <laughs> and he, he cannot figure out what is wrong with me he keeps asking me if I'm okay and I'm like I'm fine I'm fine try not to drown <laughs> but I did it so it was great I was hooked and so when that when the funding ran out I was like you know what let's go do more scuba diving stuff I want to be a dive instructor so I actually I had traveled to Summerland Key in the Florida Keys from Sarasota a few times during during my time with Moat to work at that office Mm -hmm. So I had found out that there was a shop in Key Largo that did this. It's kind of like an internship apprenticeship. So you work there for about seven months um, for free, but they do all of your training for you. And once you're good enough to be working on the boats, you're going to make a bit of income. And that's typically enough to buy your groceries because they put you up. So they give you a place to live and then okay. you work, you learn, you make some tips and then you become a dive instructor. That's actually a really great way to do it. I mean, obviously working for free is not always ideal, usually not ideal, but they're putting you up. And if they're giving you training, I mean, training to become a dive instructor can be quite expensive. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm assuming they paid for all your gear to kind of like all your tank fills and anything that you needed to be out in the water as well, right? Yes. So yeah, that was covered. Um, I did come into it with my own gear because I did have an internship I had to do to graduate in college where I got all of my own gear as part of that internship. Um, cool. Yeah, it was really, really neat internship. Uh, kind of skipped over cool. it. 
but that's why I had all my dive gear. But otherwise, um, the only things I was responsible for paying for were some of the fees to Patty, which is the training agency that they can't waive because you, you've got to pay for your book. So, okay. Cause you're going to own it. So things that I would have to own afterwards, I would need to pay for, but the physical okay. cost of training is what they were covering. That's great. Yeah. And this is at Rainbow Reef? Many, many years ago, Rainbow Reef is so much bigger now. Um, <laughs> when I did it, it was very small. We had two boats. We got our third boat during the time I was there. Um, so it was, very, it was a very different company back then. That's yeah. special, though. I mean, do they still do this program, or do you know of any other programs that are similar to that? They still do the program. So we did skip over your internship, and I am really curious to learn more about it. You were worked with the Boston Sea Rovers, and it was yeah. a Frank Stolly internship. Am I saying that correctly? Yeah. So Frank Stolly, S C A L L I. He he was the gentleman that originally founded that scholarship program. Now they just call it the summer internship. So okay. they, re- they renamed it since I did it. Uh, but yeah, so the Boston Sea Rovers is this club located in Boston. Remember. <laughs> <laughs> Really good Original. stuff. Yeah, super good. Every year they have a clinic or a conference. So if you're somewhere in that Boston area, once a year in early March, they have this amazing conference. You should totally go. But they also do take on one intern every year, just one. Uh, you have to be from New England. So that is like that is their biggest point that cuts a lot of people off from being able to apply. And the second one is it's for people that are either graduating high school or in that first year of college. So that 18, 19 age range. So it's a very, very teeny little group of people that qualify. So um, at that point, I lived in Maine and my family had moved to Massachusetts. So I qualified as a New England person in two fronts and I was able to apply. Uh, So what they do is... For an entire year, you are an intern. So you start in March at that conference where they introduce you. Then you finish out whatever semester or your high school. And as soon as you finish um, your school for that year, that entire summer basically belongs to them. And they are going to ship you all around the United States and sometimes internationally, like Canada and Bonaire, uh, to experience all kinds of different marine fields of work. So whether it's marine science or marine engineering, um, uh, what else did I do? All just everything you could think of working in a dive shop, working at an aquarium, uh, working with scientists, being part of the ecotourism field, you kind of tell them what you think you might want to do. And then they try to send you to places that let you try doing that. And at that point, I was like, "Hmm, I don't know. I just want to do the ocean. So yeah. <laughs> they were like, cool, we're going to send you to as many different things as possible. So mine wasn't super tailored, like some of our other interns that knew exactly like what they wanted to do. Like, I want to be an underwater photographer. And they're like, cool, we're going to throw photography stuff at you all summer. I was like, I don't know. <laughs> right. So I got to try a ton of stuff and it was absolutely amazing very very informative um i did also get all of my own dive gear they they outfit the intern and that included 
a custom dry suit, which I still use to this day. Wow. Um, yeah. And they also did a lot of my other courses. So I was just a baby, basic open water diver. I had at that point, something like 10 dives under my belt. So I was mm -hmm. a baby. And so <laughs> I, I got my advanced open water, which is the next level. I got my nitrox certification. I did cavern training. That was really cool. My dry suit. Uh, there's a course that goes along with owning that. <laughs> so yes. did that course. Um, yeah. And then I did, I, I just got to try a ton of different careers and it really helped me. That was the summer between, or that was the summer before my senior year at college, because okay. remember my path was weird. So, um, I, I graduated college with two, two bachelors, a minor, and I already had my associate's degrees when I was 20. So my, my path doesn't really make sense in your classic timeline approach. So I was actually already a senior in college, only my second year pursuing my bachelor's just because I had so many credits and that's what causes you to be a freshman, junior, senior type thing. Right. Uh, even though I was just like 17, I was technically right. a senior. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it can be confusing, but I still qualified right. for this internship because I was still in the right place and they're not going to fault you for taking a different academic path when I was still in the same like physical point of my life. Right. You're still a college before. student. Yeah. You're still a college student from New England that fit that very small window of age that they wanted. Yes. So that makes total sense that they wouldn't disqualify you for being a little bit more proactive with your education. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but it was really cool. And I mean, I can highlight a few names of places I worked. Yeah. What were some of your highlights that stick out in your head from this internship or your favorite moments from this internship? One of them is I got to work at the New England Aquarium, which is in Boston. Mm. Um, I had never been there because I lived in Maine for school, for college, and my family moved from New York to Massachusetts while I was in school. So I literally, one Thanksgiving, I just plugged in an address in Massachusetts and I hoped it took me to the right house. <laughs> and that's how I went home and then. And that was when I had this internship. So the first day I showed up to the New England Aquarium was my first time being there. <laughs> And in less, less than an hour from walking through the doors, I was in like a seven mil wetsuit climbing into the penguin exhibit. Oh, cool. And I hadn't even walked around the whole aquarium, <laughs> but I had penguins coming around me. And I was like, all right, this is kind of neat. Yeah. Um, so that was really cool. So everything with the aquarium I did behind the scenes, a lot of aquariums, including New England, have offsite facilities where they do research or re rehabilitation. So if you find like, like a dolphin that's stranded, they have a separate facility that they're rehabilitating it. So I did some front of house where you educate people, you, you, you play with the penguins, you dive in the big tank and scrub the window and wave at the kids. But the really cool parts were the offsite facilities where I got to see the research or watch them rehabilitate different critters. Mm. Um, so that was very cool, definitely opened my eyes to a lot more of what aquariums and zoos are doing. Mm -hmm. I worked, so also just right in Boston, I went to 
I got to work at the Harvard Museum of Natural History. Wow. And that was super cool because I learned that pretty much every museum in the world, what you are seeing in their exhibits is like not even 2% of all of the stuff that this museum has. <laughs> and a lot of museums are also facilitating research behind the scenes. Mm. So uh, the Harvard Natural Museum has one of the largest collections of marine bones. They literally have a bone library. Wow. And yeah, it was nuts. So there is like researchers that come from all over the world to have access to those bones or they're, they're sending out things on loan. What was the weirdest research topic or bone that you saw? Mm, um, it's not G-rated. It's not G-rated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, I learned that certain, certain male animals have bones in places that I didn't know that they did and come in very odd shapes. So that was definitely the, the biggest eye-opening <laughs> for me. <laughs> um, yeah, so... That's yep. The perfect curated explanation. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but there was a really cool researcher there, and she was doing stuff about what people from a certain time period, what kind of bones they used to make musical instruments. Mm. So she literally had this little cart that she wheeled down the like aisles, and I'm talking like floor to ceiling, like two story aisles of bones in their little cases library. And she would just like pull out these different bits of bones that had been carved into flutes. And she was like cataloging if they were from the same time period as the people she was studying and which critter they had used to make that musical instrument. So like, that was really cool. Yeah, that's incredible. And yeah. so this, I mean, this is just in New England. So what were some of the other places yeah. that you went with this internship? Um, yeah, so I went to, uh, one of my favorite bits was I went to Newfoundland, Canada. So Newfoundland is the, oh God, what is it? The easternmost part of the North America. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a little island right off Canada in the Atlantic Ocean. And I worked for Ocean Quest, which is basically a big ecotourism company. So they do kayaking, they do hikes, diving. Um, what else did we do? Uh, fishing. I went fishing, like the day that I, I landed it was the scariest flight of my life because there was a thunderstorm and I was in this teeny little plane and yeah, it was crazy. Mm. But the next morning I get on this boat and they take me fishing and I have never been like deep water fishing or anything before. And <laughs> so they take me with all these guests and of course I catch all the fish and the guests aren't catching anything. <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the guests, he's like, let me try your pole. You try mine. She doesn't catch anything. I'm catching all the fish. Like, it was just ridiculous, but I gave them all my fish, so they weren't mad. That's where one of the coolest things that I did in my entire life happened. Um, because they're in Canada, they do not have the Marine Mammal Protection Act. Mm. So I went snorkeling with humpback whales. That's, and that's neat. it was, yeah, it was pretty cool. It was the scariest, most humbling, amazing thing I've ever done. Because you just have a straight up whale next to you, under you, and you're like, oh my gosh. Uh, they're enormous. Yeah, um, so you feel super tiny. tiny. <laughs> very, very tiny, but also very like uh, I don't know, blessed. I guess like you just privileged. You feel super privileged to be that close to that animal. Mm -hmm. um, 
So it's, it was very, very cool. Uh, I also did like dry suit wreck diving. That's where I got my advanced open water. And uh, that was, that was pretty cool. So I did a course while I was up there. Um, yeah, so Newfoundland was amazing. And I guess the the other, gosh, there's, there's like two others that things that were really cool. I'll just try to really quick tell you, but one of them was more of the engineering aspect of the marine realm. So there is a Navy base in Maryland. It's called the Cataract Navy base. They have the largest pool, longest pool in the world. It is so long that when they built it, they had to calculate it to the curvature of the earth. Wow. So yeah, in order to keep all their measurements correct and everything level and every other year. So the odd years, so like 2011 is an odd year. Um, they host an international human powered submarine race. Cool. So yeah, so it's a lot of words, but what it means is they build these little subs for one person and it's somebody goes into the little sub, they breathe off a regulator in a scuba tank that's like fitted in the sub. And then the best part, they pedal, they <laughs> pedal and that's how they make it go. <laughs> and, and they race. And so they do two subs at a time and they race down the length of the pool. Oh. <laughs> it's amazing. But I'm like international. So these people come from all over the world. They don't speak the same languages. It's amazing. And they race their little subs. And if you win, you get like they had all kinds of different categories, like fastest and all kinds of different stuff. But there's a whole team and they go down to the bottom of the pool and they all hold up their sub, right? Because it doesn't just go and then the little the little pilot gets inside and when he's ready and they hear the the buzz they literally just like throw it it's huge and the little person inside starts pedaling and that's how they launch them oh my Um, gosh so how do they recover them do they have to catch them yeah so at the other end um once they get past the finish line then there's so on the surface, there's these little Zodiacs, which are just like little rubber boats with a teeny little outboard engine. Uh-huh. And they're straight up Navy SEAL divers because this is a Navy base. Right. And they're little dudes and they follow them on the surface. And when the subs cross the line, two Navy divers roll in and they go bail out the pilots <laughs> and bring them back to the surface. And then they recover the subs and like bring them back and get them out. <laughs> oh my goodness. And that is incredible. <laughs> so cool. And I was on the dive safety team. So I was checking all of the people before they could get in, making sure their tanks were on and everything was together. I did some things where I was underwater on like one of those little scooters where you you run the length of the pool with the subs and the subs don't always go straight. So sometimes they like veer <laughs> off and crash into the wall. And it was it was ridiculous and amazing and so cool. Lots of really neat engineering. So that that was one of the cooler things that I did. And then another one, I went to Florida and I worked with the Cambrian Foundation uh, and they study bacteria that lives in crazy remote places. I forget what the word for that is, Um, but they live in those super extreme environments, extremophobes, maybe that's the word I'm looking for. Mm. So they were looking at the bacteria that lived in the springs in the upper Florida area, which mm-hmm. if, you, if you're not familiar with Florida, a lot of that mid Florida 
area is famous for having a lot of freshwater springs. Mm -hmm. So that's what they were looking at. So we had divers, cave divers, uh, that would go in and take samples of bacteria and they'd bring it back. And then I was part of the team that would sample the water quality um, for the different nutrient levels that existed so that we could log that and be like, you know, this bacteria was found in water with a nitrogen level of blah. So I was the person testing to find out what the nitrogen level was and things like that. And that was very cool because that was um, really hardcore science that they were using. Mm-hmm. And it was just neat to see the whole operation. Uh, anyone cave diving? I Cavern, yes. So Cavern is like in the Lion King, everywhere the light touches. Okay. You can go. <laughs> okay. And then cave is once you go fully dark so we got to look at the dark but not go in the dark okay fair enough yeah yes but it was it was very neat some intense training definitely a lot of mental mind over matter training because you have to do a lot of stuff blind in case you were to lose all your light uh but yeah so that was very very cool and i enjoyed it a lot um but i have to say that those are some of the biggest highlights of that particular internship yeah what an incredible experience now how long was the internship was it an entire year or just a summer yes yeah so basically you started the march so they selected you sometime around christmas and then in march you had to go to that conference in the boston area then if you could do some things while you were still in school that were close to you you could i lived in maine so i wasn't close to anybody so i had to wait till i was done um (laughs) i had to wait till i came back from costa rica because I had to do my capstone project. So I went to, I graduated or I finished that semester, went to Costa Rica, came back and then immediately started the internship where I traveled around the whole summer. And literally, I think until like the Friday before the Saturday, I needed to drive back up to Maine for school. I was doing stuff. Wow. And yeah, it was nuts. It was my whole summer. And so then I, then I go back to school, you know, try to pass all your classes and my job then was to take everything i'd done and they had provided me with cameras throughout the thing the internship and so i then had to put together a video of everything that i had done Mm. so that at the conference that would follow my internship in march the next march i was going to be there i was going to help like run the show kind of as a volunteer like take tickets stuff like Mm -hmm. that and then i was also going to present everything that I had done, because there's a lot of people there that sponsor you. So they want to know what did they sponsor? Right. So yeah, so it starts and ends at that conference. Wow. What an experience. I also had to keep a blog for the whole duration of the thing. So that was that was probably the hardest part for me was, you know, being exhausted at the end of the day and having to write in words the absolute awesomeness I had just experienced. And I just right. went to sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, and I, I think you can still find my blog on their website. So okay. it's just bostonseagrovers.com, and then you just follow the bouncing ball to the interns, and then you find my name and click it, and you can find what I wrote back in 2011. How fun. <laughs> yeah. What an incredible experience for you. It was, I, so it was I feel very- like that really kind of paved... I mean, definitely like piqued your interest in certain things and mostly diving sounds like, um, but kind of gave you a good idea of what you do like and what you don't. Mm-hmm. What, um, so what lessons did you 
gleaned from that that carried over to after moat and you're getting your dive master and all of that one of the things that i really learned because i did function as basically like i worked for all of these places and one of the things that i found was that it was training that was most applicable in a lot of these places mm -hmm. so not so like being able to pick up skills very quickly and getting trained in them was what I took away that made me the most useful the fact that I could do that task under the water because I had that dive training. Mm -hmm. um, that was one of the things that I kind of took away. So when I did graduate, and then I worked in the research, and then the funding ran out, and I decided to be a dive instructor, it was because I wanted to be more skilled underwater. Okay. I wanted to get to that point that I wasn't necessarily thinking about diving. I was thinking about all the tasks that I needed to do while diving. So right. I wanted more comfort and that's why I went professional. That makes um, total sense. Yeah. So that was one of the bigger things that I, it's kind of abstract, but that was one of the bigger things I took more than I like that field the best, or I want to pursue that specialty. Mm -hmm. I was more looking at why are the people that I met successful? in the role that they are in. Mm -hmm. And that was that was how I thought about it. It's a good way to think about it. Yeah. And so after you got your dive master and you have all these wonderful skills underwater and you're thinking about what you're doing underwater and not about the diving aspect of it necessarily, is that when you got hired on at Coral Restoration Foundation? Mm, no, actually. Hmm. Uh, we have to go through. We have to go through a natural disaster to get to Coral Restoration Foundation. Oh, okay. Which hurricane? Yeah. Uh, Irma. Hurricane Irma in September of 2017. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I lived through that. I don't recommend it. Irma Gerd. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but there's actually, we have to leave Florida to get to CRF as well. I'm sorry. It is a convoluted path. I love it. Um, I got... So after I finished my internship with Rainbow Reef, I became an instructor. I got hired on. I worked for them. I would say grand total about two years, I think. Um, I got so burnt out that believe it or not, I didn't want to dive. Mm. I was so tired and poor. I was poor. <laughs> um, and so... Uh, I went to Alaska. Okay. So, yeah. So my boyfriend and I, um, we were like, you know what? We miss mountains and we need a break. And one of our friends, he had been working seasonally in Alaska for almost a decade, well over a decade now. He was like, you should, you should come do it. It's just seasonal work at the national parks. Yeah. And we're like, why not? You know, we're young. Why not? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, Glacier Bay, Alaska. Glacier Bay National Park, Glacier Bay Lodge. Like I said, people are not good at being creative with names. <laughs> <laughs> and so for two years, the summers of 2015 and 2016, we were snowbirds. So in the summer, we went up from April to about September, and we worked at Glacier Bay Lodge in Glacier Bay National Park. I, uh, very quickly went from the front desk supervisor to the operations manager, which 
means that there's only a general manager above you. So I was kind of overseeing a ton of departments. And then my better half, he uh, was the head of maintenance while he was there. Mm -hmm. uh, saved the day multiple occasions. But yeah, so I literally put everything I had learned about diving and all that stuff in a little box. And I went into the hospitality industry where I used none of those skills. <laughs> um, yeah. And uh, a lot of the stuff I ended up learning at Rainbow where I was running, like we, we would have office days where we'd check people in and just do mm -hmm. basic office stuff. That is what I applied to, to Alaska. Right. Um, and then the leadership stuff I'd gained by being a dive instructor turned out to be very applicable as a supervisor and a manager. I had a lot of people under me. Absolutely. And I feel like, you know, if you're taking people out diving, there's a certain aspect of hospitality to that too, that I'm sure was able to be transferred over. Yes, definitely. So we did that. Um, and during the time that we were doing that, both of us had actually achieved the number of days necessary to apply for our captain's licenses. Nice. So, yeah. So it's actually really cool. Um, 2016, we came back to Florida. So each time when we finished our season, we were coming back to the Florida Keys. And then we would work for dive shops um, as independent contractors and like teach or whatever. We were guiding all of those things just to make money and survive the winter. Mm -hmm. um, and then when we came back the summer from the summer of 2016, on my birthday, which is in October, my captain's license came in the mail. So How I know exactly fun. when I got it. Yeah. And so then we had decided that for the summer of 2017, we were going to stay in Florida, not go to Alaska, <laughs> and work on being captains and getting paid as captains because getting the license doesn't you can get the license without ever driving a boat right um it's it's more of a permit to learn and the way america is with liability um like so dive shops that have paying passengers on board they can't let you practice to dive with practice to drive with passengers on board right. because if you crash the boat or anything you're not a captain and so therefore they're insurance doesn't cover you. So you, you don't really get to practice until you have it. Right. Um, so yeah, and then September 2017 rolls around <laughs> and we were like, cool, we'll survive this winter. And then we're, we actually wanted to go back to Alaska and be captains in Alaska. But okay. instead, we got a hurricane. Yeah. And now, were so, you in the Keys for Irma? Did you stay? No, we evacuated. Oh, good. We actually went all the way. Yeah, we went to Virginia. And okay. we stayed there for like a month. Um, yeah, and it was really bad. The place we lived in, we just rented, but it was 100% loss. It was it was bad. And it took us many like years to recover from it. So this is how you get to the Coral Restoration Foundation. Yeah. So in February of 2018, so the hurricane happens in September of 2017. Yep. February of 2018, one of... My boyfriend and I's mutual friends that we'd worked with before approached us and asked if we would want to be captains for the Coral Restoration Foundation. And we were like, sure, yeah. And for me, I was like, this is great. I, I At this point, I kind of wanted out of tourism and back closer to science. Yeah. Um, it's a good so way to like, marry the fantastic. two. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was like, I can be the captain. I'll be right next to the science. I'll facilitate the science. Might not necessarily do the science, but I understand it all. Mm -hmm. And I felt better being part of a solution versus taking dive boats full of divers to a reef and dumping them on the reef where they can potentially cause harm. Right. So it felt more fulfilling to me. And so that is how that happened. Amazing. I love that you were approached. It wasn't like, oh, we saw this job and we jumped through all these hoops because that's that happens more often than not, I feel like. But somebody was like, hey, Mm -hmm. you'd be a good fit for a captain. Want to do it? Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It was um, so a lot of the times when we came back from Alaska for our summers, we were the the relief staff for a ton of dive shops. So we worked for like everybody because mm-hmm. someone needed a day off. So they would call us. We were just on the call list. Okay. And during that time, we connected with so many people and organizations and we didn't realize how big our network grew, mm-hmm. but it grew to the point that uh, we both had very, very good reputations of people that, and believe it or not, showed up to work, (laughs) showed up on time, were not drunk, (laughs) and did not have what is commonly referred to as keys disease. And so we were very, like, responsible, respectable people that would show up and do our jobs well. And because of that, to this day, when we are in the keys, we turn down work because so many people ask us to come work for them. That's great. Yeah, so it was, it was neat. All of a sudden you got to decide what you wanna do for work and if that is worth your time or not, because your time is the most valuable thing you have. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, we got approached, we went, we visited, we talked to them and we were like, yeah, we'll try this and we liked it and we have worked for them ever since. Amazing, so what is a day in the life of a Coral Restoration Foundation captain like? Uh, so we work all up and down the Florida Keys, which are, it's about like 230 miles. Mm-hmm. Um, we're based in the Key Largo area. So at the top of the Florida Keys. Uh, so depending on where we're going that day, I get up anywhere from like five to six in the morning and make lunch. And then I drive down to where our boats are kept. I have to trailer our boats to wherever we are going to launch them. So we we put all of our tanks and all of the supplies we need onto the boat mm-hmm. at our warehouse, then hook up the truck to the trailer, and then I drive to wherever we're going to launch it. So I drive to the ramp and then put the boat in, park the truck, and then drive out to wherever we're going. Um, we typically do something like three dives um, worth of work, and a dive can be anywhere from 30 minutes to two hours long, Mm -hmm. depending on how shallow it is or what we're doing. Mm -hmm. Now, and and I guess we should, I guess we should back up for one second and explain what Coral Restoration Foundation is and what their mission is. Yeah. So the Coral Restoration Foundation, again, not, not a creative name, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but our goal is to restore the reefs, specifically the Florida Keys Reef Track which goes uh, from just below Miami all the way around the tip of Key West to, um, what's the name of that island out there? Tortuga, the dry Tortugas. Dry Tortugas, yeah. Yes. Uh, So it's well over 200 miles of reef. It's actually the third largest barrier reef in the world. So um, Australia, Belize, and then Florida. 
And so what we do is we actually have the largest coral nursery uh, that is out in the ocean. So in the Atlantic Ocean, we have coral trees. Uh, so we grow our little corals out there. And once they get big enough, we harvest them. And then we bring them out to reefs and we plant them on the reefs. Hmm. Um, we also have like science aspects where we go back out and monitor how they're, how are they doing? Are they doing good? Are they doing bad? Why are they doing bad? Mm -hmm. uh, and we work with a ton of partners. So there's uh, like University of Miami, you know, full circle. Um, people from there come out and do research. They look at what we're planting, how the corals are doing. And yeah, scientists around the world will come here. We also have volunteers. So people from anywhere that are dive certified and have CPR first aid and their O2 provider can come down and volunteer with us. Mm. So you can go out and help like maintenance the nursery. We it's, it's basically think of it like a garden. Mm -hmm. And just like any garden, there's weeds. Our weeds are algae and we have to scrub our trees to keep them clean. So uh, there's a lot of volunteers that help us with nursery maintenance. Um, and then as you get more familiar and as you become a better diver you can be involved in actually outplanting the corals as mm -hmm. well so that is what we do so i as a captain i will do i will be on trips for literally anything we do i could be out we can do nursery maintenance we could be monitoring coral corals we already planted or actually out there outplanting them so it's very I mean, dynamic what we're doing. <laughs> yes. And it's very hands-on and it's doing good things and it's working. Yes. Yep. We're actually having success. So it's very cool. Amazing. It's very, now, yeah. How did you get involved? You, so Coral Restoration Foundation, and we're going to go back to Alaska as well, but how mm -hmm. did you, you still are involved with diving and dive training with an organization called Dive Heart. Now, how did that come about? And what, ah, is that, yeah. what is Dive Heart? We should explain that first. Yes. Uh, so Dive Heart is, it's kind of two things. So firstly, they're a nonprofit that um, does scuba therapy for children, adults, and veterans with disabilities. Mm. Uh, and secondly, they are a training agency, just like your PADI, NAWI, SDI, all of those things are training agencies, so is Dive Heart. Um, so I am actually the head of training for the entire agency. Amazing. Um, yeah. And that came about right after I got burnt out uh, working at Rainbow Reef and right before I went to Alaska for the first time. It was very similar to CRF. Um, so when I was working at Rainbow, Dive Heart would have trips that came down and went out with us. So we would take these individuals with disabilities, we call them adaptive divers. Mm -hmm. We'd take them out um, and take them diving and they get to see the underwater world kind of for the first time. Our slogan is imagine the possibilities mm -hmm. because we want them to know that they can they can't do these things. You know, some of them have been told no their entire lives. So we want to you know, tell them yes. And so I'd worked with them a ton. I loved it. I, anytime they were on a trip, I requested to be crew. They requested to have me as crew. And it was one of the things I was going to be saddest to leave mm -hmm. when I left. But uh, they found out that I was leaving 
because uh, I went to one of their, the, they do pool programs called Discover Scuba Experiences where they're totally free and any adaptive divers can come and just learn about what we do, maybe get in the water. And I went to be one of the, the buddies that was in the water to help facilitate that. And they found out that I no longer was working for Rainbow and I was potentially going to Alaska. Mm-hmm. And they asked me, they're like, so wait a second, does that mean that like, you're technically on the market? I I am not a piece of meat. No. What? And they're like, are you currently hireable? And I was like, yes. (laughs) So um, they turned around and went to their bosses and were like, they're like, hey, you know how we need to fill that training, you know, person position? They're like, we know who should be the person. You need to interview this girl. You need to talk to her. And so they did. And they offered me the job and I turned it down. Because uh, I didn't think they offered me enough money. And I actually um, grew a pair and wrote them a return letter and like thanked them and said, for all of these reasons and all of these skills, I don't think that's a correct evaluation of me. And so I, I think I'm going to continue to turn my focus elsewhere and focus on Alaska. Mm-hmm. And instead, they, they got the letter and they because I emailed it to them, and within like five to ten minutes of emailing, they called me, and they're like, we think you're right, we really love you, we really want you, would you consider this amount? <laughs> <laughs> so I have worked for them for over five years. Oh my um, god, that's so fun. <laughs> yeah. So a really like, good lesson in promoting your worth, too. Yeah. Um, thank you, Mom. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so... So I did. Um, it is a completely remote position, which is the reason I was able to take it with me to Alaska. So mm-hmm. anywhere that there is Wi-Fi, I can do that job. And they are huge promoters of me as an individual as well. They're like, yeah, you want to go to Alaska? Go to Alaska. Talk to people about that part. Uh, you want to work internationally? Go. Because they go too. You know, right. and we, it's an international organization. So I get to spread their mission uh, when I go to all the places that I get to go in the world as well. And then when I'm home, um, I spend a lot of time <laughs> on my computer doing work for them as well. Amazing. So yeah. what a cool job. And it, and, you know, seems like a pretty easy organization to get behind as well. Got a great yeah, mission. It, and, yeah. Exactly. It's very fulfilling. Again, another place that you can volunteer at. They, um, they've been a nonprofit for, I think, gosh, I think over 20 years now, um, or maybe almost, but they've only been a training agency since the end of 2014. They brought me on at the beginning of 2015. So I've been with them throughout kind of the entire birth of their training agency sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're, so they're, they're still growing. They're not you know, in every state. Florida is one of our most active states, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are international. Malaysia is actually probably in our top three most active places in the world. Wow. But there's lots of opportunities to volunteer if you're fortunate to live near one of those areas. So you can uh, email volunteer at diveheart.org and learn more about that. <laughs> Very cool. Cause, yeah, because I do training stuff, so I don't really do the volunteer stuff. <laughs> So what is, what does your training look like? You're actually in the water with 
your adaptive divers and kind of teaching them scuba? Um, so if, so the, the training for dive part, the company, um, so we have okay. basically like four different courses. There's, there is one course for the adaptive divers and it's really neat. We work with every agency, which is cool. We're not in competition with anyone because, so I'm, I'm a PADI instructor. So if I was coming to dive part and I wanted to teach an adaptive diver, um, I would teach that adaptive diver using all of my PADI materials. Right. So they would learn all about what is diving, how to clear a mask through the way PADI teaches it. We did not reinvent that wheel. But if they are unable to complete some of those skills the way it should be, the way it's like traditionally done, then dive heart comes in and we work with that individual to complete that skill as a team. So there's typically three people in a team, including the adaptive diver and two buddies. Uh, and we work together to, to complete that skill. Amazing. So, so that's what that training looks like. And then there's three courses for able-bodied individuals that want to work with adaptive divers. So you've got your basic buddy, just like an open water diver, your advanced buddy, you have to be at least rescue, and then an instructor. So that's someone that wants to teach adaptive divers or teach buddies and advanced buddies. Wow. And that's, yeah, so that's what that is. So I do a ton of behind the scenes work. I'm the person writing um, the standards. I'm the person, when you finish a course and you send that card in, like, please give my student a card. I'm the person that makes sure you spelled your student's name right. And <laughs> all the paperwork is in. And then I clear that card to be sent um, and, and tons of other stuff. I work with our e-learning program. I'm basically behind the scenes person. Love it. That's really yeah. cool. Yeah. And man, you've done so much and I feel like I could talk to you for a long time, <laughs> <laughs> but you, so your captain's license, not in addition to your job at Coral Restor Restoration Foundation, you were able to get a job in Alaska as a captain with Lindblad Expeditions. Could you explain what you do for them? And I mean, this sounds amazing. It's affiliated with Nat Geo. Yeah. It sounds like such an amazing job. So could you explain a little bit yeah. more what Limblad is and what you do for them? Okay. Yes. So this is when um, I had that little like, look, mom, I made it <laughs> moment. I really felt like I made it. Um, I found a way to take all of the most ridiculous things I've done, the hospitality stuff in Alaska, being a captain, being a dive instructor, being a marine ecologist, and just literally all of it which at first makes no sense. <laughs> um, and I married them all into one perfect opportunity. Um, when I was in Alaska the first time, uh, we were right on the water and we have a dock and we're on the inside passage of Alaska, which is very famous. And one day, a Lindblad Expeditions, a National Geographic ship docked at mm -hmm. our dock. And it has the Nat Geo logo on the side. And I went down there, I was like, what? is that and how do I get on it <laughs> and so they were they, they got off and they wanted to walk around all the national park like paths and stuff so I talked to some of the guests and some of the crew members for two years because I was there 2015 and 2016 okay. and I learned all about what they did um what they are is again not a creative name they're an expedition ship so they take 
um, just regular people, anybody that wants to go on vacation, um, they take these people out to the most remote places in the world. It is an international company. Um, and they take you there uh, to get off the ship. They're very small, like no more, the tinier ships, uh, max people guests on board is like 60 max. Mm. And then the big ships, which go to Antarctica, um, I'm talking more like maybe 150 people because it's just a bigger ship in general. But um, I work for them as part of their undersea team. So I get to go to all of these places and I work as a naturalist. So I study these places beforehand so that I can tell guests all about them. Um, But I get to choose what about them I want to tell. So I am a marine ecologist still. I get to say that, you know, that's my degree. I worked in it. I am a marine ecologist. And I get to learn about the marine ecology in that location that I think is interesting and make presentations um, that I can give on board and then like lead little like cruises. And because I am a captain, they have, I don't drive the actual ship. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of the ships I can, I have the license for it, but I'm not crew, I'm staff which is different. So crew is your captain, your deckhands, your stewardesses, and um, the engineers. Staff is a unique thing to the Lindblad Expeditions and National Geographic ships. We are literally your team of naturalists. We're the ones that are actually talking to the guests. We eat lunch and dinner with them. And we basically like teach them about everything they're seeing. We're the ones IDing the birds and taking you tide pooling um, and facilitating going kayaking and stand up paddle boarding and all these crazy things that they do. Um, And then as part, so as a captain, I can drive their Zodiacs, which are the little rubber boats with a little outboard, maybe like 10 people can sit in them. Mm -hmm. And so I can shuttle you from the ship to shore if we're going to hike or kayak, Mm -hmm. or if we're just doing um, tours. So like in Alaska, if we're going to go look at the glacier, we straight up get in a boat. I drive through all the ice as close as we're allowed to get to the front of the glacier. And we look at the glacier. (laughs) Oh my gosh. How amazing. What a cool job. Um, and so that, so that's the naturalist bit and the captain bit, but then the best bit is I'm part of their undersea team. So I dive, I get to scuba dive in these locations. There's only two people on the whole ship that dive. It's me and whoever whoever my buddy is. And we literally go fun diving with cameras <laughs> and we go dive these places that potentially no one else in the entire world has been diving at. And we just go to film what's down there. And so we, we get to look at the cool stuff, film things we think are cool, and then we bring it back on board we edit it. We do like an hour dive, depending on if we can last that long because it's cold in some of these places. So yeah, I still use that dry suit. Um, (laughs) And and then we edit the footage together. We learn, we ID the critters that we have no idea what they are and learn a little bit about them because we have like libraries on board. And, And then we present it to our guests and we get to show them what's underwater in these places. So we actually can provide like a 360 degree view of this remote location that they've chosen to visit. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. So that is what I do. That's a really special Uh, job. 
What a cool job. Yeah. Now, how long are they doing this for? Uh, so there's lots of different kinds. We have literally, I'm like, the ocean is one ocean and we are in all of it. Mm -hmm. um, so depending on where you are and the ships move throughout the year, the, the trips can be different lengths. So some of them are only like five or six days long. Uh, some of them are just a week. A lot of the ones in Alaska during the summer are a week. And then we have two week trips and three week trips and ones that are actually a month. Some of the ones in Antarctica are a month long. Wow. Um, yeah, because they take you either off of Chile or Argentina and they go to the Falkland Islands, then mm -hmm. South Georgia, then all the way to Antarctica, spend time, then you have to come back. Right. Um, and we also have long ones that will start in Alaska, go through the Inside Passage, go through the Aleutian Islands, which is basically like the Florida Keys of Alaska. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, unfortunately, because the ice at the Arctic Pole has melted, you can now do an Arctic crossing. And so they actually go around the top of Alaska and Russia, and they go all the way through the Arctic Circle and they end somewhere in like, they'll either end in Russia or Greenland or somewhere over there. Wow. Yeah. So that takes a minute to do. Yes. Now, which of these um, cruises have you done? So I started in Alaska because I lived there. So that's where they wanted me to start. And then I have been to Baja, California, which is a part of Mexico mm -hmm. uh, and is amazing. I never knew I wanted to go there until I left and I wanted to stay. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, such a cool place. And I was supposed to go to more, but the coronavirus has canceled my trips. So I'm currently waiting at home uh, to find out when I'll be able to get back on the ship. Okay. But yes, I'm still scheduled for Alaska. Um, but a lot currently our trips have been canceled through May 30th. So they're trying to start trips June 1st, but um, things are changing daily. So I don't even know if we'll get to go to Alaska this year. Oh, bummer. Yeah, bummer. It is, but you know, we'll come back and then uh, hopefully I'll get on more more ships to different places. We've got ships permanently stationed in the Galapagos um, mm. as well. As an American, I'm not allowed to work there. So this is a fun fact because I have met people that apply for Galapagos jobs. If you're not from Ecuador or you're not from the Galapagos, they can't hire you hmm. because all jobs go to them first unless nobody originally so they start in the galapagos if no one from the galapagos can fit that job description they open it to ecuador if no one there can fit can fill the role then they can open it to international applicants okay but the jobs on the ships in the galapagos don't get past people that live in the galapagos so as an american um or any other um place you're, you're not gonna get in as somebody that works there so that's, yeah, that's a good factoid. thing. Yes, but it's a good thing to know because I've met people. They're like, "Yeah, I've applied for the Galapagos for years, and I never get called back." And I was like, "Ah, yes, they never, you never will." I'm sorry. <laughs> so I'll save you some time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's a fun fact to know. You can go there for fun and support the economy, um, but you're probably not going to work there unless you end up getting citizenship, which is right. very hard to do. You have to marry someone. 
<laughs> All right. Yeah, noted, right? Game plan. Um, Fun. But yeah, so tons of amazing places. I I hope we get through this sooner rather than later so I can keep going. Um, yeah. My contract, so when I leave, um, I'm typically gone for three to five weeks. Okay. Yep, so I'll stay on board for several trips. Typically, sometimes five weeks is one trip. Uh, sometimes it's five separate trips. Sometimes it's seven because wow. there are a bunch of little five days, right? 30 divided by five is seven, right? Maybe? No? Six? <laughs> Goodness, yeah. math. A bunch of, bunch of um, trips in there. Yeah, something like that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's very dynamic, very different. As staff, we're not married to one ship which is really neat because we go, we get to go to all of them. Um, and that's, that's really cool. That's the cool part. I haven't even begun to tap into all of the places I get to go. That's so exciting. Thank you for sharing that. Very cool. I'm excited to see where you get to go next after all this is over. So I have a couple more questions as we wrap up. I like try to keep this about an hour, but I've been having so much fun talking to you. So (laughs) yeah. Um, so what is one of your favorite field story or stories to tell? And this is always a tricky question for people to answer. So it could be a favorite project or a cool project or just a day out in the field that was just amazing and the most memorable thing. And this it's just something that sticks in your brain that you would like to share. Hmm. Um, goodness. <laughs> and you've spent a, a lot of time in the field, so I'm sure there's a lot to sift through. I know I can uh one of the coolest things that happened to me in the ocean period ever actually just happened to me like two weeks ago oh um yeah so I was I was driving for the coral restoration foundation and I was coming we're coming home we're done with our day and I don't, do you know what a mooring ball is so a mooring ball is like it's just a white buoy it's uh maybe the size of a beach ball mm-hmm. and they're they're pre-set in the ocean so that boats don't have to set anchors. So you go up, there's a little line coming off and you just clip your line to that line and ta-da, you're anchored. Um, And so I saw what I thought was a white mooring ball in a place that it should not have been. I was like, oh no, it's broken. Like we should go pick it up. Mm -hmm. But as I got closer, my brain clicked and it's like, that that's not a mooring ball. It's a puffer fish completely inflated and upside down with its white spiky belly to the sky. And it was as big as a mooring ball? That's what it looked like. Yeah, it was huge. Oh my Um, gosh. (laughs) And so I'm driving up to it and my brain is like, what in the world am I looking at trying to interpret it? And right as I'm figuring that out, me and my coworker at the same time see the shadow of a shark right near it. And and I like immediately I'm slowing down. I'm starting to turn around because in my brain, I was like, there's only one shark that is curious and crazy enough to do that. Mm-hmm. And so my brain went tiger mm-hmm. and we turned around and sure enough, there was a juvenile tiger shark, like playing with this beach ball of a puffer fish <laughs> at the surface. <laughs> And it was the most like ridiculously cool and weird thing I have ever seen. And we, we, I mean, we're done. We're sweaty. We're tired. We're sunburned. And we stayed with that thing for like 45 minutes. And he was just, he was just a little dude, like maybe five, six feet, little tiger, super cute and stripy. And he he would just come up to the, 
to the puffer and he would like nom it and like push it around because he couldn't figure out how to eat it. <laughs> and it was, it was so cool. Oh my gosh. What a cool um, moment. Wildlife is so, wildlife moments are, you can't plan them, right? So you just take advantage yeah, of them. <laughs> and it was such a weird domino of choices that led us to being on that boat at that place for that day. And so mm-hmm. it was like, I was like, oh, this is why everything happened today. <laughs> <laughs> so that that's definitely one of the cooler things that happened to me that I can I can think of like right off the bat. <laughs> a tiger playing beach ball with a puffer fish. I love it. Yeah. Yep. That's so. a really fun story. I know. <laughs> I love tigers. So that was just like, what? And it was pretty, I think it was every other person on my boat's first time seeing a tiger shark. And they like, when we were approaching it, I was like, guys, it's a tiger. They're like, what? No, I think it's a nurse shark. I was like, no, no, no it's a tiger. And sure <laughs> enough, we get there and it's a tiger. They're like, oh my gosh. So at the end of every episode, I always like to give the audience a conservation ask, something to take away, something fairly simple for them to take home and munch on. And you have a lot of really great things to bring in. Um, some of it is just as simple as re- reduce and reuse. Um, mm-hmm. So could you kind of explain a little bit more about what you would like the audience to take home and do? Yeah. So um, I kind of have two things yeah. that, that are big for me. One of them, like the most impactful is, is yes, like reducing and reusing. Cause I've been, I've been to a lot of places so far and I'm like not even enough places, but still very humbly a lot. And I've found trash in all of them. Um, And including, so when I was in Alaska last summer, I was driving um, an ROV, a remotely operated vehicle. So it's like this cool little jetpack that you just send to the bottom of the ocean. It's got a tether and you hold literally like an iPad and it's a video, it's like a video game. You get to see what it's seeing and drive it around. And you can also record while you're doing it. So we were exploring the bottom of the ocean in this bit of Alaska. And I, I found a beer bottle at like 80 to a hundred feet underwater in the middle of nowhere, Alaska. Mm. Um, and so like, that was, that's pretty sad. That's an easy thing that could have been, you know, recycled, or something, you know, to keep track of, you know, and I don't know the situation, maybe they dropped it, it fell off, it was an accident, but still, it was very, a very sad thing to see, because you're like, oh, pretty starfish, cool sea urchin, and that is a beer bottle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's a big one. And then the other one that's pretty important to me is um, not taking shells, or like sand dollar tests, or sea urchins, um, off the beaches. So not bringing those home as souvenirs. Uh, take a picture. And then if you want to help the ocean, throw it, throw the shell back in the ocean and, and leave it there. Right. Because all of those things, shells, um, tests, which is just the fancy word for skeleton of a sand dollar, which is what we normally see on the beach. Those are all really vital bits of um, calcium bicarbonate, which is something that is a limited resource in the ocean and a lot of critters use it to build their shells. So like snails or the sand dollar, um, corals and a lot of other critters, that's what they use to be alive. So every time you take that shell, you've taken away their building blocks and it is a limited resource resource in the ocean. And if the oceans continue to get more acidic, 
that's one of the first things that they erode is that calcium bicarbonate, it erodes, like it, it melts very easily in acidic environments. So that to me is one of, uh, one of my biggest things that I like to tell people. I'm like, just take a picture and throw it back in the ocean. There you go. And you know what, if you take a good enough picture, maybe you can hang that on your wall. I know a lot of people take their shells home and then it just collects dust on a dresser or something somewhere. And, you know, if it's a beautiful photo, you can hang it up on your wall and remember the shell forever. Exactly. Yep. Um, so if you've got a whole bunch of them, you know, that's an easy thing to do. Go uh, throw them in the ocean. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. Now, if the audience wants to connect with you, where's the best place to find you? Uh, probably Instagram. Okay. My, uh, my handle is, it's chasing summer but it's spelled like chat speak because that name was already taken. <laughs> so it, it's Chasen Summer and it's C-H-A-S-I-N-S-U-M-R. Perfect. And I will put a link yeah. to that and everything that we've chatted about in the show notes for today's episode. Cool. Well, Rachel, thank Yay. you so much for being on the podcast. This was a lot of fun chatting with you. Oh, you're very welcome. I'm super glad that you invited me. Thank you for listening to today's show. I'd love to hear any insight you've gleaned. Leave a comment in the show notes or send me an email over at marinebio.life. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a review and of course, share with your friends. If you want more resources for ocean news, including conservation topics and careers, plus personal insight from me that I just don't share anywhere else, join me at marinebio.life and sign up for email updates. Keep after your dreams and making waves in your community one person can make a difference. Thank you so much for listening and I'll catch you next time on the So You Want to Be a Marine Biologist podcast.